What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com. And today, I've got special guest, repeat guest, Dr. Stephen Hussey. If you'll remember, last time I had him on the podcast, we dove super deep into all things heart-related. We talked about uh, heart disease. We talked about we talked about everything. And I've had so much feedback from that particular episode about how people were constantly like pausing the episode, taking notes, diving in, writing down timestamps because there's just so much information. This time, we didn't really talk about the heart. We dove deep into uh, human evolution as it relates to nutrition, what we've been evolved to eat over the past several hundred thousand years, a uh, million years. And we even took another step further and talked about how to sustainably support the human race from a nutrition standpoint. We talk about hunting. We talk about uh, subsistence farm. We talk about a lot of really good stuff. And I got pretty fired up. He got pretty fired up. We dove deep. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I truly think you will as well. So without further ado, sit back, relax, enjoy this podcast with Dr. Stephen Hussey. And we're live. Dr. Stephen Hussey, how are you, man? Pretty good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Last time we talked, we dove deep into uh, the heart and everything cardiovascular, um, just basically everything dealing with the heart, which honestly, of all the podcasts I've done, that one, I got more feedback on re- regarding like people having to stop, pause it, take notes, and just scribble down th- facts and timestamps because they had to go back and listen to it. I personally had to listen to it like three times. <laughs> that's awesome. I didn't know that. You never told me. So that that's, I mean, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad people liked it and, and found it valuable. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I want to dive into... Did your new book just come out? Uh, this uh, the book on evolution um, came out um, November twenty eighteen, so it's been out a little over a year. Because we we didn't we kind of mentioned it in the last podcast, but we didn't really dive into the nutrition and diet from like an evolutionary perspective. So I'd love to kind of flesh that out in extreme detail today. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, sweet man, let's let's um if anybody hadn't listened to the first episode, definitely do so. But for the people that haven't, can you give like a quick little intro on you? Yeah, so um, I, uh, I'm a chiropractor and a functional medicine practitioner, um, and my, my health journey kind of started at a very young age uh, when I was diagnosed with all kinds of inflammatory conditions and uh, you know everything from IBS to asthma to I used to break out in chronic hives all over my body. And so um, you know I've come a long way from that, and I am happy to say I've, I've cured most of those. I was diagnosed with autoimmune type 1 diabetes. And so um, that kind of predisposes me to heart disease. And so that's why I've focused a lot on the heart. Um, but I, I guess in my, my journey, um, my health journey, evolution was what really gave me the, the answers I was looking for. When you know my medical education didn't quite give me the answers of, of why I had experienced poor health and why um, um, I had the diseases that I had, uh, evolution was really what kind of made things very clear, gave me an understanding of why, which I've always asked why, you know, and, and wanted to have a deeper understanding of things. So, um, so yeah, it's really, you know, my health journey pushed all these, these passions of mine, whether it's evolution or the heart or whatever it may be. I love it. I feel like, like I'm, I'm big into history, particularly Native American history, but just history in general, I feel like, you know, in order to really know where you've, where you're wanting to go and kind of optimize for that you really need to know where you've come from and looking at the diet from an evolutionary perspective is a great way to do just that i mean i'm i'm amazed at how many people are basing their nutritional you know protocol off of just these crazy like hypes and these things that have no history in the american diet whatsoever Uh, and you stop and you pause and reflect at like how we've come to advance as a species i feel like you have to look at the evolutionary perspective to understand why we've had these like breakthrough moments and to kind of ref- reflect and change things using that knowledge, I think is key. Yeah. So, and, and even, you know, to take that a step further, this may sound crazy to people, but I, you know, I, I look at blood tests and I look at the latest research and I find that stuff interesting, but I also find it fascinating that for the vast majority of time that, that humans have been around that those things were not available you know, we had to determine our health and our um, ability to thrive and reproduce and everything based pretty much on trial and error, you know, and, and we're, you know, one of the most, you could say successful species on the planet without, you know, 
um, modern testing and, and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, while I enjoy looking at those things and they tell me a lot, I think that to be so hyper-focused on, or, or I guess to allow a set of blood work to tell you if you're healthy or not, um, is almost the opposite of what I would want to do. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, I, I would really want to take that stuff into account, but then also just, you know, how do I feel on this diet? You know, um, how, how does, how does this diet work for me? You know, okay. So I feel absolutely amazing, but this number of my blood work is weird. Does that make what the way I'm feeling wrong or does that make the blood work wrong? You know, um, because I think there's people who go on like low carbohydrate diets or even, you know, carnivore diets, which are, are very popular these days. Um, they see some of the things on the blood work that don't match up with what they're told is normal. Uh, and, and they freak out, but how do we really know that's not normal? Um, so it's just really interesting, you know, idea to think about. And so much of what is quote unquote normal is based off of, you know, the, the standard deviation right now in, in American society. And that's not really a good average to want to pull from in the first place. Exactly. I think that a lot of what's yeah considered normal. I mean, I, the example I give people is like, let's say we took a wild animal and we took it out of its, its natural habitat and, and away from its natural diet. Um, and we started feeding it an natu- unnatural diet and put it in an artificial environment. Um, and then we took the blood work of that animal and all the, you know, the testing on we would do on that animal and say, this is what's normal for this animal. And I, I think most people would say, well, that probably isn't what's normal, you know? And so when we look at the, the, you know, the, um, the normal ranges for the, all these blood markers and other tests, those are the normal ranges of a, of a human population that's living well outside what it's, what it's, its physiology has been evolved to as far as diet, as far as lifestyle. So how do we really know that all those numbers on blood work are actually what's supposed to be that way, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, wh- where do you want to, where do you want to start, man? I feel like we need to kind of wind, wind the clock back a few yeah, yeah. thousand years here. Um, but wh- where do you want to dive into that? Where, where can we lay the foundation? Well, I think that it's probably best to start. So I can kind of outline the the four kind of principles of evolution that, you know, I, I don't know the actual, you know, official principles of evolution, but they're kind of my principles that I came across that kind of gave me aha moments, um, you know, that, that told me, oh, maybe this is why myself and others suffer from chronic disease. Um, if you want to go through those, you want to? Yeah, yeah, let's dive into it, man. Yeah, so the first one is... Um, just understanding natural selection itself, um, which is, you know, a term that's thrown around in, in evolution. And so, it, you know, when I kind of grasped what it was, it was kind of an aha moment because, you know, I used to think that, you know, how I used to think, how is it possible that a, a living thing can physically change its characteristics to, um, to better suit its environment? And that's because that's impossible. No individual living thing can actually do that. You know, this is something that happens over generations. And, so that was the first thing for me was just like, it's not that a, like an individual living today can physically change, but if there's enough generations, it can. And so the way that works is, is, you know, as an example, if we had a, um, I mean, I guess giraffes are a good example. Like if you look at their long neck, like how did they get such a long neck? And, and at some point in their, in their history, um, it became evolutionary advantageous to have a longer neck. And so whatever that meant, whether that meant it was the neck was good for fighting off, you know, a predator, or if it was good for reaching food or something, it gave it an advantage. And so the ones who had longer necks uh, had more of an advantage and could reproduce more readily or easier. And so more of their genes got passed on and less of the giraffes with the shorter necks got passed on. And so over time, more and more long neck genes get passed on and pretty much the whole population eventually has longer necks. Um, and so once I grasped that, that, that that's how evolution kind of worked, that's how natural selection worked. That was a big aha moment for me. Um, the second one is that I guess, I guess the underlying principle is that, that humans are still subject to evolution. Um, and so I think an, an example of this is the idea that, uh, like, you know, in, in any sort of medical training, you always learn that, that people of minority descent are more susceptible to um, metabolic diseases like diabetes and heart disease and things like that. Um, And they tend to get them more often and more severely than people of uh, non-minority descent um, or European descent. And so 
I chalk that up to the fact that um, people of European descent were eating, you know, along the lines of a more westernized diet um, earlier than those people of minority descent. Okay, so if we're thinking about, like I think about, you know, medieval times in, in medieval Europe, uh, times like that, when when uh, there was a lot of, uh, like your people of European descent were eating a lot of grains and things mm-hmm. like that and, and, and farming. Whereas, you know, people of minority descent were probably less likely to be doing that. They were eating a more natural, like wild hunter-gatherer diet still. Um, but back in those medieval times, uh, people of European descent didn't have Western medicine, you know, so people who were more susceptible to those foods to develop metabolic disorders, um, they died off more readily. And so there was a little bit of natural selection happening there, you know? And so then we get to modern day and we see that um, the, the genes that are more susceptible to those diseases when we start eating those, those um, processed foods uh, are a little bit less, uh, they, they rear their heads a little bit less in people of European descent. People of European descent can still get those diseases for sure. But what we see as far as like um, American Indian or um, uh, Pacific Islander or um, African-Americans, they tend to get these diseases more severely because they never had that. You know, they came, you know, from more of a hunter-gatherer lifestyle straight into a Western, you know, diet, which is there was no period of evolution to kind of wean out those genes. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what are some of the, the typical diseases that we see in that spectrum? Uh, as far as uh, just the metabolic diseases. So we're talking about heart disease, diabetes, um, insulin resistance, um, those types of obesity, you know, just general metabolic syndrome. Gotcha. Uh, they tend to get those more readily and more severely, um, more frequently and more severely. Um, the third principle for me is, is that evolution takes a very, very long time. Uh, which it's sometimes it's even hard to wrap your head around because even the idea of natural selection is it's kind of hard to wrap your head around until you think of the idea that um, it takes multiple generations. So there was a, a Russian scientist named Dmitry Belyev, and he started selectively breeding um, Arctic foxes, I think, Siberian foxes. Mm-hmm. And um, he was he was selecting them for like docile traits. So he was selecting for the ones that you know were more likely to come eat out of his hand or get closer to them and to humans. And he would take them out and only let those breed, the ones that were seemed to be more docile. And he kept doing that generation after generation. And and foxes have a, um, uh, a, a um, shorter birth cycle than, than humans do for sure, like only a few months. So he could do this pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. And about the 30th generation, he, uh, he started seeing changes, like physical changes and behavioral characteristic changes. So... Um, and eventually ended up with uh, basically these these Siberian foxes that were like dogs and they were domesticated. Uh, and so that shows that it takes you know at least at least 30 generations to achieve any sort of real change as far as um, evolutionarily speaking. And so if I'm thinking about that, like I don't even know what my great great grandfather looked like or didn't know him, you know, and that's only like four generations away. Is so, that species dependent? Like would it be different for humans? Uh, yeah, it would definitely be different because there's we have a much longer reproductive cycle. You know, so we wouldn't be able to adapt um, very uh, quickly or as quick as the foxes. And it's the same with like um, if we look at bacteria, you know, they they have very, very short reproductive cycles. So they can adapt to a new situation much quicker because they have the necessary um, uh, generations to do so. Whereas a species that um, has very um, a very long a reproductive cycle it's it's hard to adapt because it's 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 hard to have the necessary generations the natural the necessary like um you know it, whether it's a mutation or a natural selection it's, it's just it doesn't play out as quickly does that make sense mm-hmm. definitely yeah and then you have like, something like an elephant where i think the uh, gestation period is like 22 months so you know very slow adaptation phase and so but even then with with Belyov's experiments that was very controlled selected breeding and so we can't expect that to be the norm in nature, you know, mm-hmm. so it would probably take even longer than that. So it's just this huge amount of time that it takes evolution. And if you look at the history of life on Earth and even the history of humans, like there's been enough time for us to evolve all the characteristics that we have. Um, but even then, I think about it in the sense that, you know, there's some things, some physiologic uh, mechanisms within our physiology 
that probably evolved literally billions of years ago, um, you know, and then the first, you know, uh, multicellular organisms, the first single cellular organisms, there's probably still characteristics of our cells today that evolved back then. Um, and so this is a, a, a very highly ingrained in us thing that, that, you know, our physiologic mechanisms. And so that brings me to the fourth principle, which is the fact that since these things are pretty much ingrained in us through the process of evolution over um, a very, very long time, whenever the environment of any individual changes too quickly, um, it's very hard for that individual to adapt and change to the environment if it doesn't have enough generations. And so when I look at how long evolution takes and I look at the major changes that have happened um, over the last especially 250 years, but really the last 10,000 years, um, which seems like a long time, but it's actually not evolutionarily speaking, then you start to you start to realize that the major changes that humans have gone through, the major changes in way of life are what's driving this chronic disease epidemic. And I think that um, diet is, is at the forefront of that one of those changes. Well, it's crazy. I mean, if you just look at how we were eating food, you know, in the 1800s compared to how we're eating food now. I mean, it's a night and day difference. I mean, there's, that's not near enough time to have like an adaptation or an evolutionary shift. Exactly. And and I would say that that, you know, the food back then was very different because it was, it was more than likely, you know, pretty much all whole food. There was very little processed food in general. Um, but even then there were still, uh, you know, there was still farming. There was still a higher amount of carbohydrates than we would have had um, you know, during the, the vast majority of, of time in our evolution. Um, so if we, if we look back and, and looking back on, you know, archeological data and, and all this stuff is, is a little bit speculative and we have some information, but it's, it's still a little bit speculative, but the data that we do have is pretty compelling. So if you look at, um, around like 2.5 to 1.8 million years ago, when we start to see the first of the genus Homo, which, you know, we are Homo sapiens. And so the first genus Homo came about, um, it, we, we came from, we evolved from these species named Australopiths and there was various different species of them. And then, but what happened during that time was we also see a massive die off starting around that time of very large mammals. And we're talking like woolly mammoths and you know, cave bears and giant sloths and things like that, the, the megafauna that was around during that time. Anywhere that humans showed up in the archaeological evidence, we started to see a die off of these large mammals. So it's pretty clear that what took us from being Australopithecus to making us the first genus Homo into, into taking our evolution in the direction of Homo sapien, what we are today, modern humans, was hunting, uh, was, was eating a very large amount of animal fat and protein um and so that's what you know i think drove the the um the increase in our stature it's what drove the um the growth of our brain and i think cooking also had a lot to do that when we eventually invented fire too or discovered fire um that that drove it as well but you know evolutionarily speaking we were we were primarily eating um an animal-based diet and a, and a high-fat diet. Um, and there was, when I think about it, I don't think that there would have been too many times when carbs and fat were available um, at the same time, or at least were eaten at the same time. Um, and so I think that that's the major problem today is that we have this excess amount of calories and that the problem isn't so much that it's, it's too many carbohydrates, though it is. I mean, there's definitely too many carbohydrates around, processed carbohydrates. But I think the major problem is is all the processed foods with fats and carbohydrates together. Um, I think that is, that's the biggest problem as far as from a metabolic standpoint. Yeah, and I mean, the, the carbohydrates that we would have been consuming back in that day and age, I mean, totally pales in comparison to the type of carbohydrates we're eating now. Like even the vegetables and fruits we have now, they've been genetically modified to represent a whole different type of macronutrient exactly and i think that you know even even back then there would have only been a available you know certain seasons of the year whereas animals are running around all year long um and i think that like i said 
if if a human could have gone for fat um an animal protein or or just eating an animal that's a that's a much bigger trove of nutrients um and pretty much all the nutrients you need to an extent um and so that was the bigger bang for your buck and then there were times when maybe animals weren't available or you know um they just were bad at hunting you know or for for a week or so and they probably had to rely on some some plants and that's where carbohydrates came from you know and so um but but the point being is that whenever they had to rely on those carbohydrates it's probably because there wasn't fat and so they weren't eating both at the same time at the same meals and things like that so that's why i think the importance of this this whole notion of metabolic flexibility comes in you know, because I think that's one of the most important indicators of health is metabolic flexibility, the ability to readily burn fat. Um, and, and even if you do have carbohydrates, the ability to get back to that fat burning state very quickly. Um, I think that's a huge indicator of health and it, it makes sense evolutionarily. How clear is the research regarding the correlation of, you know, the homo sapien species coming into existence and the dying off of the megafauna? Because I would think that, you know, we weren't that abundant as a species and you know the megafauna had been walking around for quite some time so it's it's crazy to think that we would have had enough numbers to be able to hunt those out to extinction in such a short window well i don't know that it was such a short window though i mean this was we start seeing this around like 2.5 to 1.8 million years ago so it was it was quite a long time like the die-off happened over that large amount of time um so you know 1.8 million years and so i think that we became very very efficient hunters um and consuming a lot of these animals animals but i also think there was um there was some climate changes as well that if you put stress on a population like hunting it it's less able to adapt to a major change like that so there could have been multiple factors for sure um but whatever for whatever reason we see this die off and we also see that you know the evidence of hunting and, and for humans and, and tools for butchering and things like that um and then but then eventually that food source um that that literally i think made us human this high fat food source um wasn't there anymore and you know all we had left was maybe these these smaller mammals that were leaner and had less fat on them and so we needed a we needed a um something to replace that those calories and so eventually we start to see humans you know eating more um, higher carbohydrate plants and then learning how to farm them. And, you know, this happened over, you know, a vast amount of time. It's not like it's one, one group of humans decided to do this within a generation, but it was just, it was kind of like what we had to do to survive. Um, so we replaced those, those fat calories with, um, more carbohydrate calories, which was a good source of calories. And we could, we could mass produce them through farming and, that was that was good as far as a staying alive standpoint, but the calories turned out to be less nutrient dense um, and gave us poor health. And the archaeological evidence showed that you know a lot of the first farmers suffered from things like infection and poor bone formation and things like that, which makes sense because fat soluble vitamins like D and K are essential for for bone formation. Um, but also they had dental problems and things like that. And so, you know, it allowed us to you know come together and in, in the kind of civilizations and um, not only mass produce our food, but also increase in population and, you know, create these big civilizations uh, and lead us to where we are today. However, it, it also, I think, had had effects on our health, um, like negative effects on our health when we, we strayed from that. And there were always animal agriculture too during these times. But like I said, the problem is when we have, you know, these carbohydrates and fats together and our metabolism, I think, is really meant to do one or the other. If you were to map out the human timeline, when did like mass scale production of agriculture start to really take place? Hmm. I mean, it was pretty pretty recent. I mean, we were yeah we were consuming predominantly meat and doing you know some foraging for carbohydrates like you know root fibers and whatnot, but we weren't actually planting seeds and growing crops uh, until here recently. Yeah. And I think, I think mass production of it, you know, like, cause you know, farming has been around for a long time. I mean, the, the ancient Egyptians were farmers there. They were known to eat very little meat. 
uh, and they just farmed on the banks of the Nile, but they're also known, like we can do CT scans of mummies and they had atherosclerosis as well. Um, uh, and so, but I said, it was like mass production farming. I think, I don't think that really started increasing until the industrial revolution. Um, when we start to see, you know, machines starting to do the work of humans, you know, now we could do so much more work, you know, with these machines that we couldn't do, um, you know, just by manpower alone. Uh, and so now we you have these huge production of farming and then just more and more really, you know, carbohydrate based calories, uh, nutrient poor carbohydrate based calories. And that kind of, um, you know, the, the amount of calories from fat that humans were getting started to drop and the amount of calories from carbohydrates um, started to, to increase. And that's when we started to see these, the first, the very first evidence of this chronic disease epidemic not to mention the introduction of seed oils, like in the, you know, I think maybe like 1920s or 30s or something like that, um, which are very problematic fats. So, you know, our, our metabolism that literally was, had, had evolved for millions and millions of years, all of a sudden, you know, around 10,000 years ago, and then especially, you know, or 10,000 years ago when we saw the first farmers, and then especially around industrial revolution time, um, all of a sudden went through this massive shift. So it makes complete sense that that's also when we start to see the health of humans decline rapidly. Have you noticed any um, advantageous effect? Like are humans as a species kind of evolving over time to be better adapted and suited for those carbohydrates? Or do you feel like it's just a, a continual decline? Well, this is, this is an interesting conversation. And yeah, I, I try not to upset people with it. I don't think it would. It's just it's just information. But I I think that if we look at natural selection, if we look at evolution, it's it's pretty relentless, right? The the species that are less fit for the environment are the ones that are supposed to die off, and the species that are more fit with the better genes fit for the environment are supposed to reproduce and and pass on. And that's how we get a strong you know, species, right? Or one that's best fit for the environment. So we've drastically changed our environment. And I'll, I'll make this, I guess, um, less uh, risque of a subject by, by putting it on myself. So I'm, I'm, I had a terrible reaction to the environment, um, our modern day environment with all the chronic diseases that I had. You know, if you, if you look at what I was doing as a child, um, you know, eating the diet that I was eating, um, I was an anxious child, the toxins I was exposed to, like this modern day environment, my physiology had a very poor response to it. So bad that I became type one diabetic, which if I was living out in nature would have meant death for me, would mm -hmm. have meant that I did not survive and did not pass on my genes. Right. And therefore the people who don't have that response to the same environment that I was in would pass on their genes. And now we have, um, we have, eventually we have genes that are, are best suited for this modern day environment. But since that's not happening anymore, I do think that we have, we have kind of slowed evolution. Therefore, I do not think we're evolving to this modern day because, because I mean, I don't have children, but I could, you know, and, and I could pass on those genes that are very, you could say unfit for this modern day environment. Whereas natural selection and nature would have made sure that didn't happen if we were living in a natural world. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, you have to kind of be careful talking about this because, yeah, yeah. you know, like it's not politically correct in the sense that you can definitely offend people. But yeah. I look at what you're saying and I look at the people in my, you know, general vicinity. I mean, look at Arkansas. Like I live in Arkansas, which is a, it's a welfare state. I love Arkansas. I'll talk highly about it. But it's, it's a welfare state in which the majority of the population is obese and they don't really care too much about health. I don't want to generalize and just, you know, say everybody's that way. But that's just, I mean, if you look at the map that shows the obesity rate, Arkansas is one of the darkest colors. And I look at the people around me and I'm like, you know, we are fortunate enough to live in a day and age where we have all the creature comforts. We don't have to, you know, survive out in the wild. But if for whatever reason, this entire population was in like a... a catastrophic plane crash and we're all stranded in the middle of nowhere i mean most of the people i know are going to die because they just do not have the the physical prowess and ability 
to support themselves when times are tough. And that sounds super harsh, and that probably makes me a bad person for saying it. But <laughs> if I was going to put my money on people right now in this day and age, like, there's a lot of people that would not stand a chance out in the wild, which if you were to look at that from an evolutionary perspective, it's crazy that we're just basically circumventing natural selection in its entirety, and the gene pool is just continually going downhill. Yeah, I, and I, I think that's pretty accurate. The gene pool is going downhill. And so if we think back to, um, you know, if we think back to when we first started civilizations, you know, like these civilizations took us out of the harshness of the natural world and they put us, you know, away from, you know, animals that, that may um, hunt and kill us. And they, they put us in communities where we could work together uh, and they provided this, you know, this, um, the source of calories that maybe not been the healthiest for us, but it's okay. We could survive on those because we weren't in such a harsh environment anymore. Um, and so life has just gotten continually, continually easier. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not against that. Um, but when we, if someone's asking me why they may be experiencing poor health, we have to realize that the, the creature comforts, as you said, may not be doing our physiology any favors. Um, and we have to, we almost have to, you know, restrict those creature comforts a little bit and learn how to not be so reliant on them in order to achieve higher levels of health. You know, like you may like, you know, those foods that you know, the comfort foods, so to speak, but if they're not the ones that are going to give you health, you've got to get rid of those. You know, you, you may like the, um, the ability to drive your car where you go, but you know what, it may be better for you to walk every now and then that kind of stuff, you know? Um, and those are just, you know, some very, uh, basic examples, but but yeah, and I could definitely say some things that would make people not like me. I mean, <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah. just thinking about all this stuff, and it's 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 sad because I go out of my way to find hardship because I, I try to build up that resilience both physically and mentally. But so many people live in this bubble where they're like okay with mediocrity, and because of that, like their health has just totally declined. But it's okay because hey, they can just, you know, get that governmental healthcare funding. They can, they can have all those shots. They can have all those pills to kind of prolong that death date. And what's even worse is they don't take any thought into consideration about the epigenetic effects toward their kids, you know. And they'll be smoking, drinking, you know, have very poor health, then get pregnant, pass a lot of those epigenetic genes onto their offspring, and then it just continually goes in this negative feedback loop, and everybody's guilty of this in some extent. I'm not saying that I should be put on a pedestal by any means, but I feel like people have to recognize the simple fact that we live in a day and age with technology that you're not going to be killed off by other predators. So you have to proactively make sure that you're still top of the food chain and on top of your game. Exactly. And yeah. And, and, and like you said, like you're not like preaching or anything. This is just information. This is just, to me, I really like understanding, you know, it, it helps me, it helps me, um, I guess, stick to, uh, my health, um, um, habits, you know, when I understand why I'm doing it, why I need to do it. Um, but that's just me. I, I really like understanding things. Um, but you know, yeah, it's not like we're, we're, we're preaching to anybody that this is the best way to do it. Everybody's got to find their own thing. But when you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, this is exactly what's going on. And it explains our chronic disease epidemic. And, and when you, when you don't understand that, you just assume that, oh, I have bad genes, you know, and, and, you know, that I just wasn't, I wasn't given good genes, I was dealt a bad hand. But, you know, we, we now know that you can, you can literally change the expression of your genes to an extent based on the environment you put them in. And I always give the example of, of poker. Uh, so you can, you can be dealt a, a very bad hand, you can be dealt like, either nothing or a pair of twos or something like that. Um, but that doesn't mean you're going to lose the hand. You know, you can, you can still bluff your way through the hand and win. Um, whereas, um, whereas people who are dealt like a Royal straight flush, they really don't have to work that hard to win the hand. You know, they're probably going to win no matter what, unless they get scared and fold. And so depending on which, you know, um, deck of cards or which hand that you're dealt or which genes you're given, will tell you kind of how hard you have to work. Some people, you know, we all know kids with cancer and we all know people who smoke and drink their whole life and live to their hundred. And so it kind of depends. Most of us are dealt, you know, somewhere in the middle, you know, like a full house or something like that. 
Um, but the point being is that, you know, just because you're given a certain set of, of cards or genes doesn't mean that you're destined to the outcome of that hand, you know? Do you think, I don't want to sound too doom and gloom here, but do you think we're going to, you know, catch ourselves before we wreck ourselves, so to speak? Or do you think it's going to be like some pretty catastrophic event that's going to actually cause people to open their eyes and wake up? I think that, I don't know, I don't want to get too doom and gloom either, but I I think that as as a society, as, as a population, I do think we're going to see, I don't want to see, I don't want to say die off because I don't want it to sound like we're going to have like this, you know, apocalypse or anything. But I, I do think that there's going to be a point where the population starts to decrease um, because, I mean, we're already seeing effects of it right now. We're seeing, you know, uh, infertility clinics pop up everywhere. You know, you know, the human population, at least in the Western world, is having a problem with fertility um, and the ability to conceive. And if you trace it back to, to Darwin himself, like in his book, he, he says, um, and I don't know, I don't have it verbatim memorized, but he says something to, to the effect of when you change the environment of a species too drastically, the first thing that suffers is reproduction. And it's not necessarily um, the, the female who is most affected. Most likely it's the male. So the quality of the sperm is affected. Um, and I think that we're finding more and more of that in society. So I think that while I, while I, I think and I hope that it's not some you know, quick die-off or, or anything like that of, of humans, I do think that it is going to turn itself around, whether it's gradually or more sudden, I don't know. But I think the, the fact that infertility is a growing issue is should be a clue that like like that's the you know throughout evolution that was the the sign of health was the could you reproduce because that was the goal of life to pass on your genes mm-hmm. to the next the next um uh the next generation and we are literally having trouble doing that and that the problem is growing so that should be an indicator that what we're doing is not is not in the best interest of our physiology what is your opinion on uh like food itself like food quality and its ability to be uh you know sustain the human population like when you look at how fast the human population is currently growing we're at what like seven billion people right now i think um and you look at what is a sustainable way to produce quality food for seven billion people like it's not gonna like i don't know how you could possibly do uh do that through like regenerative agriculture and small local you know (laughs) cattle lots i mean it's gonna be it's a tough question to figure out and this is like a constant debate between like the vegans and the carnivores but there's got to be a tipping point somewhere when it comes to what can you sustainably raise from a quality nutrition standpoint to feed these these this mass amount of humans versus what is going to be able to uh you know actually feed them and then i i fear that that's going to oftentimes just deviate to the cheaper uh, more abundant food source, which is the processed food. So it's going to be like a, a tipping point in the, in the wrong direction, basically. Yeah. And I think, you know, I alluded to it earlier when I said that, you know, when we started farming and producing way more calories, nutrient, nutrient, poor calories, but way more calories, that is what allowed us to start growing in number. And we've pretty much sustained that growth for a very long time on these nutrient poor, but abundant calories. And so when I start thinking about how do we get, you know, a large amount of people, you know, the majority of people eating more nutrient-dense food, nutrient-dense foods, it's, it's difficult. And I, and I got to say, I don't know the answer. Um, I do think, though, that from a, from a, you know, from a perspective of making sure that the human race is around um, for, for, for a long time from now, Um, we really need to start paying attention to, you know, where our food comes from and how it's being produced, because if it's being produced in a way that's not sustainable, like, you know, if we're degrading, you know, feet and feet of topsoil um, every year, and there's only so much topsoil left, eventually that, that large amount of, of nutrient poor calories in the form of farming that that's, you know, keeping us alive at least, um, will eventually not be there. 
And so we need to find ways to restore health to that land. And the only way that I've seen to do that is to have ruminant agriculture on that land to restore health to that soil. I don't think that, you know, regenerative um, ruminant agriculture, you know, we could, we could feed this, uh, the world on, on that. But I do know that there is, there is way more land available for, for ruminants to graze on that is that you cannot farm on. Um, and if we start utilizing that land, like forest, like they can go through forest, they can go through, you know, rocky, um, more rockier land that you can't farm on. So if we started utilizing that land and raising animals on that land, um, rather than just, you know, cow pasture and things like that, I think we, we'd be able to produce a lot more food. Um, but to tell you the truth, I, I just don't know the answer, but I do think that I still argue for the fact that we need to do regenerative agriculture, because if more people start doing that, that may create more problems, but it'll get us fixing problems in the right direction. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. We, we may, we may come across new information or new problems that we figure out that will get us answers to the, the things that we don't know right now. You know, um, if we keep going the direction we're going, it's clearly unsustainable. And I think that the, the food system will collapse at least a part of it, which is the, you know, the, the farming system, because we won't have any topsoil. I won't be able to farm, um, especially without, without chemical fertilizers, which are, are not in abundant supply either, because that's made from oil and there's all kinds of wars over oil and there's only a limited supply of that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's very convoluted and I, and I, I don't know, uh, the answer, but I just, I think that, you know, in the book, not to give it away, I kind of make the argument that, you know, the same things that, that are causing our environment to, to suffer are the things that are causing our health to suffer, you know, and examples, uh, I guess, are like, you know, plastic, you know, the, the pollution, the, the oceans are polluted with plastic. There's a big plastic island out in the Pacific Ocean, and it's, it's killing animals and, and, and that kind of stuff. But it's also harmful to us, you know, it's an endocrine disruptor. Uh, it's been linked to breast cancer, um, and all kinds of hormonal issues. And, um, and if you don't believe me, you, you know, read Anthony Jay's book, Estro Generation, talking mm-hmm. all about the plastics. And so if we choose not to expose ourselves to plastic, which is hard, but, but you can do it, then you're also doing things that are better for the environment and the planet that, that we call home because, you know, you maintaining the diversity and health of that planet of our home. is going to, you know, ensure, um, a little better, the, the, um, you know, the continuation of our species, because in reality, we don't necessarily, um, people don't necessarily care about the planet. They, they say that all the time, but, but, and they want to save the planet, but if human beings died off tomorrow, the planet would be fine. You know, um, it would rebound and, and it would, it would keep going and some other species would arise and that kind of stuff. Whereas what we really care about is, is we, we care about the planet changing too much. Right. You see this loss of diversity that we're seeing, we're seeing global warming. Like if it changes too rapidly, you know, we may not be, you know, consciously aware of it, but subconsciously, I think people know that, you know, if it changes too rapidly, we can't adapt to that quick enough. And so that's why we care about the planet and, and maintaining the current state that it's in. Um, because we know that if it continues to change as rapidly as it is change that, you know, we're, we're contributing to, I wouldn't say that we're causing all of it, but what we're contributing to, then, then that's a big deal as far as from an evolutionary standpoint of, of, of a species, you know, maintaining health and, and staying uh, a species. Yeah, it's 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 very fascinating, man. Like it's it's scary. I've I've had Anthony J on the podcast, and since talking at length with him, I've totally removed plastics from my from my life in, in its entirety. Like I've got stainless steel everything. I drink out of glass bottles. I mean, I don't I don't have any plastics. Um, yeah. And it's a pretty easy fix. I mean, there's literally an alternative to everything. Just as there's an alternative for the keto diet, uh, for every food that you used to eat as a carbohydrate based diet. Um, so you just have to put in a little bit of effort, you know. And I look at the the concept of regenerative agriculture and I, I really just I don't think this is actually ever going to happen but the the only viable solution that just comes to mind is you know we live in a day and age where you can open up your laptop computer you can open up your cell phone and you can connect with anybody 
anywhere in the world. Like, there's no need for these major metropolitan cities. Uh, I mean, there's just not really a, a use for them like there used to be. So you could work remotely at any office, any any career path, anything. So, like, if everybody just, you know, went out, purchased themselves a little couple-acre plot of land and then just practiced their own subsistence farming and, you know, livestock agriculture raising, then... I mean that that would that would have such a profound impact. Like that's what I personally am striving to do. Like I'm saving up money right now to buy some land so that I can basically take care of my own and know that I'm, you know, not having a, a negative carbon footprint. I'm I'm basically having a net negative ideally carbon footprint, but that sounds very, you know, far out there doomsday preppers like, but that I mean that would have an impact on so many more ways than just the environment too. Like you look at people and their ability to work with their hands and have common sense and hold a conversation, look somebody in the eye. There's so many things that have been lost in human society because they're just constantly ingrained in this hustle bustle movement, but they don't live for the moment. And if you're going outside to grab the eggs underneath the hens, you got roosting up. I mean, just the little things like that have such a profound impact on your health, your environments, and just, you know, human interaction as a whole, that if more people gravitated towards that, I think that would be monumental. Yeah. And I'm really glad you said all that because I never really thought about it from the perspective of that we have this technology now that we don't have to live in cities. You know, I, I've never thought about it that way because, you know, I think that it's estimated by 2050 that more than half of the world will live in cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and And so... You know, and, and if we look at that dynamic, what that means, you know, we spend so much, um, so many resources trying to get resources to the city, you know, to cities. And so we basically strip the land of whatever, whether it's, you know, the health of the soil or, you know, the, the minerals and, and coal and things like that, like energy resources, we literally strip the land and we use it all up and we concentrate it in this, in these cities. And, and so that's that's not very good for as far as you know redistributing things and then keeping the health of the land as far as regeneration goes um and 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 but i like i never really thought that yeah you know we don't we don't need to live so close together anymore because it used to be that cities were these and it still is but you know cities were these places where we saw you know uh, a lot of advancement whether it was technologically or culturally or or philosophically, you know, we saw these these great ideas come from cities because people were coming together and and bouncing ideas off each other. But now, we don't have to be so close. You know, I mean, I, I consult with people all over the world. You know, um, I just got off the phone with someone from Australia today because I was helping them with their health, and you know, I don't need to be. They don't need to come to my office anymore. I mean, um, look at the fact that we're podcasting right now, man. I mean, what yeah, state true. are you located yeah. in right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in Arkansas. I mean, we're across multiple states here. We're talking, you know, clear as day. And we're broadcasting this out to anybody that's willing to hear it. I mean, if you look at right. what people purchase on a day-to-day basis, like I, I can get anything from Amazon, have it shipped to me. I can I buy my meat from different places and have it shipped to me. I mean, there are, you know, some uh, some carbon effects from the shipping, but I feel like if people just lived a little bit more remotely and took care of themselves, then that would have a drastic impact on the environment and there i mean if I, I can't honestly think of any reason to mandate or require you know advancements in business to be in a city i mean i look at what i do personally and shoot i think i'd be more productive if i'm out in the middle of nowhere because then i have that mental break and more creativity from being ha- able to have that disconnect yeah and yeah i mean i think i think you're dead on i think you know, this is one of my one of the arguments that I have, and I, I try not to, you know, argue, you know, carnivore, vegan, whatever. I mean, I have, I'm definitely more of an animal-based diet. Um, and, but, but one of the things that sells it for me personally is the fact that on an animal-based diet, the vast majority of my food comes from, you know, pretty close to an hour or less than an hour away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to be clo- pretty close to polyphase farms um, here in Virginia. And so that's about an hour away from me. And then even then I, you know, uh, there's a town maybe 30 minutes from, from me that I just bought half a cow from. And, and, you know, that cow was, was, um, 
raised very, very close to me. Whereas if I wanted to be on a vegan diet to get all the nutrients I need, I would have to ship food from all over the world pretty much. Um, because when I look at what grows here in Virginia and if I would be able to get everything I needed um, from food that grows in Virginia year round, it'd be impossible to do so in a, in a environmentally sustainable way as far as not using up too much you know, transportation, um, electricity, things like that. Um, and, and so it, it's just, I also noticed that, you know, when I'm on a, this animal-based diet, I'm producing way less waste. I throw away way less food. Um, cause as long as I have a workable freezer, I don't waste anything. Yeah. Um, that's, that's huge, is, man. I, I am, that's yeah. my pet peeve right there. I, I literally throw away nothing. No yeah. food is ever wasted. And I feel like so much food is just thrown away. So much money, time and resources are spent on producing this crap food just for it to be thrown away. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly disheartening. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of the fact that most people, it seems within our space, you know, they take pride in the fact they don't waste food. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that it's, I mean, going back to like, in particular, all the way back to like metabolism, to me, it just reinforces that a, a carbohydrate based metabolism can can not only cause you issues from a health standpoint because like i said you could people can run off fats or carbs either one and and do pretty well as far as like maintaining their weight but the problem is when we have them together but the other issue is is that there's a downside to having a carbohydrate-based metabolism which is more inflammation more oxidative stress insulin resistance that type of thing whereas you know but that diet's also going to lead to overconsumption. i think more wasting of food um food food um, production or food um, being shipped from all over the world, that kind of stuff, rather than, you know, this, this fat-based metabolism, you know, where I'm eating high amounts of protein and fat, I experience much better health, but I'm also eating food that's very, very local to me. Um, and I'm, I'm having less of an impact on the environment. So it's just, it's just like a no brainer. You know, it, it's, it, if we do both at the same time, that leads us to issues. If we do one or the other and then pick the one that gives us the best health outcome, based on how we feel, then it's going to be better for humans. It's going to be better for the environment. It's going to be better for the world. Yeah. And I would argue, I mean, a lot of people don't want to think of it like this, but animals are an incredible renewable resource. I mean, they, you can go through more animals more efficiently with much less waste and damage to the environment than you can, you know, large scale production farming. And I mean, there, there's no, nothing wrong with that if done correctly. Like for instance, uh, my folks, we, we have lamb. We have all kinds of animals, but we have a bunch of lamb. And, you know, we, we get quite a few lamb each breeding season. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go to my folks' house this weekend, slaughter a lamb, and stick it in the freezer, and I'll have meat for days. You know, I mean, that's just a good quality source of protein that comes pretty regular. And the lamb are taken care of. They're they're living a happy life. I mean, they get to be free-range, do their thing. And I get quality food on a recurring basis. And that, that is, I mean, it doesn't require that much land to do. It doesn't require that much expense to, to feed them. I mean, there's so many things that people can be doing that brings them closer to how we've been doing things, evolutionary speaking, for years. And they can have a much greater impact on the planet, their health, and just their enjoyment in life. Like people, in, in my opinion, being so disconnected from the foods you consume the way you live is just, it's just not good, man. Like I, I'm a avid hunter. I love hunting. I love playing my part as a conservationist in that regard. I love managing the wildlife population in my area and taking part as a hunter, you know, killing, cleaning, processing, consuming the food that I eat. I think the more people that can kind of go to, towards that, I'm not saying that everybody has to do that, but the more people that can go towards that and learn those skills and be self-sufficient, the better because when it comes down to it i mean like we were talking about earlier like if you're in the wild you have to be educated you have to be self-sufficient or else you will die i mean natural selection will take over and your gene pool will be weeded out so i think as a human race we need to strive to become more self-sufficient than we've let ourselves become over the past several hundred years yeah and another i'm going to ask you about this because i I, I want to experience hunting one day. Maybe I'll come over to Arkansas. You can show me. Yeah. But um, I want to do it one day, but I never have. So I'd, I've never had this experience, but I want to ask you then. I feel like if, if I, if I had 
if most people weren't so removed from, you know, the process of, of taking that life to sustain your life, I think there would be less animosity toward that killing or, or whatever, you know, um, because I feel like that if, if you were only killing to, to sustain your life and you were truly grateful for, you know, the, the nutrition that that, that animal provided, you would also have this sense of wanting to be a good person because you took this life and it's your responsibility now to do, you know, good stewardship to, to the other animals and to, to nature, because you're, you're participating in the ecosystem that's there. And like I said, I've never really had that direct experience, but I feel like that's how I would feel. Like I would feel like, man, I really need to, to step up and be a, the best person I can be um, because this animal gave us life for me. You know, uh, it didn't, it didn't want to, but, but it, it, it was the sacrifice that, you know, it made it that, that that's how nature works. That's what all combines together. You know, does that make sense? 100% man. I mean, if you, if you take another animal's life, like just speaking for me personally, like whenever I kill an animal, when I'm out hunting, you know, I walk up to that animal. First of all, I practice, whether it be with a bow or with a gun, so that I can put a well-placed shot on that animal to minimize any risk of suffering. Like, this is not like this redneck drive around shooting just for sport. Like, I have no respect towards that. But from a legitimate, you know, food-gathering standpoint, practicing your skill as a hunter, putting a well-placed shot on the animal so they die swiftly and cleanly, walking up to that animal saying a prayer over that animal and then taking it and processing it, being sure to waste as little as possible. And the the work that goes into cleaning it, cooking it, preparing it, eating it. I mean, you take so much more pride. You don't want to throw food away that you put so much work into getting. Like, that's a disgrace. So you waste much less food because you have much more respect over the food that you're eating. And then... You're helping the the wildlife population as a whole. I mean, we've we have screwed things up royally as a human race when it comes to taking away wildlife habitat. So we have to step up and play our role in managing that wildlife habitat. And hunting is the best way to do that. The most the most you know respect towards animals comes from the hunters, like the the conservationists, the wildlife biologists, the people that are actually in the field hunting. They have the most respect for the animals. And if you take that life, it's not because you are just into killing things. It's not because you value bloodshed. It's because you're playing your role in the, the circle of life. And when you become a part of that circle, it's you become complete. You have, I mean, life and death is just reality. We are all going to die. We are all born. But when you play your role directly in the effect of other living things, and you become a part of that circle on a much grander scale. It's 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 a beautiful thing, man. I'm I'm proud to be a part of it. I'm proud to introduce others to that circle. I love, uh, you know, Danny Vega, for instance. He killed his first deer at my farm, and he walked up to the deer. He put an awesome shot on it, dropped instantly, and he said a prayer over that deer when he walked up on it. We took it back to the cabin, cleaned it up, and like we we grilled it that night. We were eating some of the tenderloin from the deer he killed an hour prior. And there's just nothing like that, man. There's nothing like that. And if people do that and they respect the animals like they should and they respect how they live their life, I mean, I have full faith in the fact that the human race would just be way better off. Yeah, for sure. And I think it just goes back to the, to the I guess, the underlying theme of, of what we've been talking about here is that I think that humans remove themselves from the ecosystem and then they exploited you know, the, the resources of the, the ecosystem that they left, um, you know, and that's what's led to our problems. It's what's led to our health problems, our economic issues, um, our food security issues, all kinds of issues, because we are literally not participating in and being responsible with the ecosystem that we, that we live among really, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that's just, just amazing. Um, uh, all those experiences that you have, that's, that's pretty cool. Well, shoot, man. Let's uh, let's make it happen. I'll uh, happily take you down to the farm here in Arkansas, and I'll get you on some deer, and you can experience it all for yourself. That'd be awesome. I'd love to. <laughs> well, until then, brother, where can people go to find out more about you? Uh, yeah, my website is resourceyourhealth.com. Uh, that's where I run my, my blog and my health coaching. Um, and then I'm on social media, uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey, on Instagram and Twitter. 
and Facebook. And I post mainly about like metabolism and the heart and things like that, but um, also about evolution. So people can find me on those spots. Awesome. Well, I will certainly link out to that, make it easy for people to find you. And I really appreciate you taking time, man. I feel like more people need to hear this kind of stuff. So I always, I mean, I probably got fired up a few times in this recording, but I'm glad because I feel like this is a passion of mine and I feel like it needs to be a passion of others. Yeah, it's a great conversation. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Take care, brother.